joining us. My name is Justin Logan. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, and it's my pleasure to be hosting the event today for Samuel Goldman's book, After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. I want to start with a couple logistical notes. Obviously, we're not in person, unfortunately, yet. Um, but attendees can submit questions in a variety of fora, including the event website, which you're probably watching on right now, Facebook, Twitter, and or YouTube using the hashtag CatoFP. And the questions will be answered uh, in the discussion period after the presentation uh, uh, and discussion from our discussant. Nationalism is arguably the most powerful ideology in the modern world. It affects foreign policy, immigration policy, economic policy, electoral politics. It bounds and shapes almost every aspect of political and economic life. And I wanted to open this event with two vignettes that speak to the sort of nationalist moment in the United States that we're having at present. Uh, the leading cable news host in America got into a bit of a spat with the ADL in April over his advancement of what they call replacement theory, the idea that elites are importing foreigners to replace the native-born population. So responding to the ADL's criticism of him, Tucker Carlson cited an article on the ADL's website that argued against a one-state solution in Israel-Palestine. Using the ADL's words about Israel against it, Carlson said that no more than Israel should, the United States shouldn't, quote, voluntarily subvert its own sovereign existence and nationalist identity and become a vulnerable minority within what was once its own country. Carlson then concluded by lamenting that in America, quote, an entire native population is being systematically disenfranchised. At the very other end of the spectrum, uh, in a recent interview, former President uh, Barack Obama lamented that, quote, people's identities have become far more invested in which side you are on politically, talking about the national level, lamenting that, quote, people's identities have, or I'm sorry, pointing to the decline of other mediating institutions that provided us a sense of place and who we are, whether it was church or union or neighborhood, those used to be part of a multiple set of building blocks about how we thought about ourselves. And I think these prominent themes that keep cropping up in the American political environment today uh, say something about the situation into which this book uh, has, has parachuted. We seem to be living in an era of big politics. Nationalism has become bigger and more pervasive. American elites openly refer to themselves as nationalists more prominently than they have in decades. And to me, Samuel Goldman's book offers a skeptical cautionary account, account of what I call big nationalism urging us to look at our history and our present to determine where we should head for the future. So with that setup, I'll introduce Sam and our discussant, Anatole Levin, and then turn things over to Sam and respectively to Anatole for comments. Samuel Goldman is associate professor at George Washington University here in DC and the executive director of the Loeb Institute for Religious Freedom at GW. He's also the literary editor of the journal Modern Age. Um, and also Anatole Levin is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute and a professor at Georgetown University's Cotter Center. He is the author for our purposes today of two important books, one entitled America Right or Wrong, An Anatomy of American Nationalism, which I think was originally published in 2004, if I remember correctly, and more recently, Climate Change and the Nation State, which looks at climate change, a sort of global phenomenon through a nationalist lens. So with that introduction, Sam, I'd like to turn things over to you for the book talk. Thank you, Justin. Um, and thanks also to Cato for 
the invitation to speak um, and the opportunity to um, explain uh, my own view um, of the debate that um, you've so ably described. Um, and I should begin by acknowledging that the title of the book uh, is something of an intentional provocation, but like many intentional provocations, it is easily misinterpreted. Um, so I want to explain what I mean um, when I, I talk about a condition after nationalism. I don't mean that nationalism is dead as a political influence. Um, Quite the contrary, it seems to be very much alive. Politicians, parties, and movements uh, will continue to wave the flag, uh, both symbolically and literally. And at least sometimes, they are likely to win. I also don't mean that some of the policy proposals associated with the revival of nationalism are necessarily bad. Reasonable people can and do disagree on the costs and benefits of policies regarding trade, immigration, or international alliances. And indeed, in the book, um, I welcome some of the criticisms that nationalist theorists uh, have offered um, of the political consensus of the last 25 or 30 years. What I do mean when I use the phrase after nationalism, is that the dream of one nation under God, unified by culture and habit, and informed by a shared understanding of what it means to be an American, is very unlikely to be realized. Uh, this is a fractured republic, as the political theorist Yuval Levin has put it, uh, and it is likely to remain so, um, at least in the relatively near future. Now, why is that? Uh, some of the causes of our condition after nationalism are relatively recent, and among them is sheer scale. The population of the United States is approaching 350 million, which is several times larger than the Roman Empire at its peak. Indeed, there are just six modern states today with populations over 200 million, um, and the United States is the only one among them um, that I think can be described um, as an economically developed liberal democracy. Now, a very large population does not necessarily exclude unity. But the measures that are required to establish unity on that scale tend to be coercive and sometimes brutal, uh, as the example of China in particular indicates. Technology is another challenge to unity and consensus. Uh, the dominant media of much of the 20th century were aggregating. Um, the most vivid and familiar example is network television. Uh, Walter Cronkite um, enjoyed the attention of 30 million viewers uh, in a substantially smaller uh, country five nights a week. Now, 
only the Super Bowl gets that kind of ratings one night a year. Instead of relying on just three TV networks, the internet, cable news, and especially social media tend to be disaggregating, driven by our own preferences um, and hypercharged by algorithms that try to give us only what we want, we now have very different experiences of the world and draw very different political and social conclusions from those experiences. Finally, 21st century of America is characterized by an upsurge in the importance of identity, which is a, a vague term um, that generally refers to a particularized and often partly chosen sense of self. The rise of identity politics is often associated um, with the upheavals of the 1960s, um, but I think it actually has much deeper cultural, philosophical, and religious roots um, extending back centuries, uh, even to a period before the establishment of the United States of America. Now, one can acknowledge the recent consequences of these centrifugal influences, while also believing that the past was very different, uh, perhaps even within living memory. But I don't think that's true either. Um, and the main argument of the book is really an historical claim that American national ide identity has always been unsettled uh, and subject to periodic redefinition. Now, this is a short book. It is not a comprehensive history of American nationalism. Instead, I focus on three symbols or metaphors that stand for rival visions of American identity and purpose and remain familiar and influential today. First, I describe the idea of covenant, which designates an understanding of America as a chosen nation, comparable to the biblical Israel and bound by a common faith, and at least to some extent, by common blood. This idea has been subject to variation and adaptation over the centuries, but it remains closely associated with the New England Puritans, who assume a role in this account of American identity as the true founding fathers. The second symbol is the crucible, uh, or in a more colloquial phrase, the melting pot. This account shifts the defining features of the American people from the past into the future, when a population of various cultural and ethnic origins is expected to be blended together into a seamless alloy. Popular culture tends to link uh, this idea to the port cities of the East Coast in the early 20th century. But historically, uh, I argue, the idea of an American crucible was much more closely associated with Western expansion and the frontier experience than the so-called immigrant ghettos 
of the late 19th and early 20th century. The last metaphor I discuss is the creed. And the creed is a way of evoking the expectation that while Americans may not become indistinguishable in their habits, in their appearance, in their faith, or in other qualities, we can be defined by a shared commitment to certain ideals expressed in founding documents and reaffirmed in formal rhetoric uh, over the last several centuries. This account tends to emphasize 1776 uh, as the definitive moment for American national identity. Um, but historically, it was articulated largely in response to the crisis that produced the Civil War and was popularized and institutionalized most effectively in the middle of the 20th century uh, when the United States undertook a role as the so-called leader of the free world. Now, each of these symbols had periods and areas of particular success and influence, but none, I think, proved to be totally effective or as enduring as its advocates hoped. The covenant became a dominant motif of high culture for centuries, and I think it lives on in somewhat mutated form uh, in many of America's universities. But from a very early stage of American history, it proved to be too regionally and culturally specific to really define the life of most people who were not themselves uh, descendants of New England Puritans. The idea of the crucible made successive waves of non-Anglo, non-Protestant, but still mostly European immigrants, Americans, in ways that the covenant seemed to exclude. But it broke down in the 19th century on the question of whether absolutely all human beings could be accommodated by the national melting pot. The idea of biological race was not central to the covenant because of its emphasis on language, religion, and culture. But it became something of an obsession for critics of the melting pot, who argued that the national alloy was being corrupted by the addition of inferior materials. The creed more successfully accommodated the growing diversity of the population um, and demands not only for equal political rights, but also for cultural respect uh, for religious, ethnic, and other minorities. But it was institutionalized, not so much as the result of free and open persuasion, but as part of national mobilization for a series of worldwide ideological conflicts, uh, beginning with the First World War and extending into the Cold War. As we moved away from those conflicts, it became increasingly difficult to suppress old tensions about the relation of religion, 
culture, and race to the American nation. And that's what I mean when I say that the uh, upheavals of the 60s were in many ways a return to the historical norm after a period of remarkable and exceptional cohesion rather than a decisive break with the past. Now, this analysis raises the question um, of what to do next. Um, and I think that is actually a very American question. I I'm told that uh, in Europe, uh, if you write a book, it's enough just to describe a problem. You don't have to give the solution, but Americans like answers. And that optimism and belief that all problems can be resolved uh, by men and women of goodwill may be an enduring characteristic of American culture. But unfortunately, I don't think there are any such solutions because I don't think we ever had the stable unity that many of us want. Instead, I think there are only strategies and institutions for managing disagreement. And at the end of the book, I briefly gesture toward some possible uh, examples that might include strengthened political parties, a more disaggregated educational system, the removal of some of the regulations and restrictions on religious communities and their associated institutions, um, and the similar uh, liberation and encouragement of uh, organized labor. A more ambitious idea is to expand Congress uh, so that it can better represent the political uh, and regional diversity of the country, um, and also to find ways to shift uh, legislative authority to Congress as a uh, representative body and away from um, administrative agencies that are far more difficult for citizens to influence. None of those things is easy, and none also is a silver bullet. But again, uh, my, my suggestion here is that we find ourselves in a difficult situation which we can best hope to manage, but probably not to transform. And the book is, if nothing else, um, a case for sober reflection um, and epistemological humility, which are virtues that are always in short supply, but um, I think are particularly rare in current discussions. Um, so I will conclude there um, and look forward to Anatole's uh, comments about what I have said and what I've written. Thanks so much, Sam. Anatole, please chime in. Thank you so much, Justin. Thanks, thanks to the Cato. I'm delighted to be back with you again um, and uh, to be commenting on this book, uh, which I think is a, a very important one that puts its finger on some of um, the most critical issues facing America today. Um, so I'll just begin by highlighting some of the things that I, I thought were most important and write about this book, and then raise one potential objection or, or question for Sam. Um, I think it's something that it does tremendously well and is so necessary, uh, is to point out that America has always been a very diverse society with tremendous differences of culture and opinion. And also to bring out the, uh, the degree of coercion uh, and also very often hysteria, public hysteria, necessary to create uh, you know, even the impression, or 
no, the reality as well, but often also the impression of a homogeneous society. Uh, I always remember reading in the memoirs of Harrison Salisbury, the famous American journalist, how in, um, in 1917, after America declared war on Germany, uh, in this small town in Minnesota, his father and his uncles and other very respectable local professional people, doctors, lawyers, local businessmen, armed themselves with shotguns and baseball bats and went through the town systematically smashing any shop sign or window in the German language. Uh, the, uh, the, the removal of an enormous German language world in America, the very specific identity or identities of its own, did not simply happen naturally. As Sam points out in the book, you know, th this was the product of the First World War and then the Second World War after. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the Cold War and its impact. Uh, and we also need to note how... Um, the, these episodes left behind uh, institutions of control uh, and coercion, uh, which are in in many respects alien, you know, to the original na the original nature of American society and the intentions of the American founders. You know, there was a, a, a really heavy long term price to be paid for a lot of this these attempts at unity, uh, and uh, today. Um, as the, the book argues, the, you know, any attempt to create a culturally and ideologically you know, even halfway monolithic uh, American society from the nature of American society today could only end in catastrophe. Um, there has been such a catastrophe before in American history. It was called the, the Civil War. Now, that was necessary in order to bring uh, an end to slavery. Uh, but I think we should be very wary indeed of investing any cause with less than the abolition of slavery with the, the kind of moral fervor and determination that, you know, that accompanied the process leading to the Civil War. Um, on a, a personal note, uh, I have to say I, I've come to see the U.S. Supreme Court since the 1960s as a very negative institution from that point of view. Because an institution that was created to, to sort out, you know, constitutional, procedural issues, of, it seemed to me, in general, a fairly practical kind uh, in a, a federal state, uh, over the past three generations has become something which, if I may say so, is closer to um, the Iranian institution of the supreme jurist. Remember, the title is su not supreme leader, as it's rendered into English, but Supreme Jurist and the Council of Guardians. You know, in other words, to, to, to impose you know, a monolithic set of moral rules derived from an interpretation of, of sacred scripture um, on what is in fact a very different society and a, a, an innately pluralist society. Um, and uh, I have to say, just because the Democrats started doing that, uh, I don't think that should be any excuse for the Republicans doing it in the opposite direction. You can't do that to America. And I think Sam's book makes that point um, very, very effective. Uh, the other, um, I think, very important point is uh, the devolution of power. I mean, America was created as a federal system for a reason. Um, you cannot force upon Texas um, 
the the cultural rules of San Francisco or vice versa. You know, America is not designed that way. It's not. It isn't that way um, by nature. And uh, there simply has to be enough slack for different parts of America, and you know, within the different parts of America. You know, obviously, America is not divided now in neat terms geographically. You know, for people to pursue their their own visions of the good life and the correct way of doing things. Um, I think uh, very important as well, and of course entirely in, in keeping with um, Chockfield's understanding of American democracy, is, is the point about devolved local government, local democracy. Um, not, not just because this allows this uh, pluralism, but also because Sorry, the light is fading here in Qatar. I'll just turn on a, uh, another light. Um, I hope that doesn't. No, that's not very good. Uh, well, um, because hopefully this allows people who differ on grand ideological things, it doesn't just allow, but hopefully even forces them uh, to agree on things they have to agree to in order to make their local communities work. Uh, you know, and, and seek out practical issues to agree on, you know, which are or should be beyond uh, the range of, um, of ideology. And also, hopefully, of course, to be able to pursue in dealings with each other, um, the sort of basic good manners and civility, which, uh, uh, you know, fly out of the window on the national scale. And also when it's a question, of course, of the social media and not actually having to sit down with your neighbours who you live with every day and sort out issues of the drains, you know, and the water supply and the roads, all these things. Uh, and um, I think uh, uh, another point really to be brought out specifically today you know, is the degree to which the creed, uh, of course, you know, elements of that are implicit in, you know, in the American political system and constitution and tradition, uh, but the degree to which, as Sam writes in the book, you know, th this w w was also developed as a conscious project in the past. Uh, and also, of course, the, the degree to which it was really developed as, well, as a national creed uh, as part of these external struggles, uh, the two the two world wars uh, and the Cold War, uh, and I think that's very important to note today, as there is so much of a movement to plunge into a new Cold War with China, and really once again to use the language of the creed to remobilize the creed in that regard. Um, you know, and we should not forget, um, you know, at this moment, uh, how, uh, of course, I mean, aspects of the Cold War absolutely necessary. I mean, you know, I, I come from a, an absolutely Cold War tradition when it came to resisting Stalinism. But we certainly shouldn't forget, and I think, you know, the book reminds us just how much damage this also did, you know, to the American tradition and the Western tradition in, in general, this, you know, this constant ideological mobilization for external struggle that, I mean, maybe, you know, it has some good sides, no doubt, you know, people have pointed out the contribution this made to, to civil rights in America, you know, because you couldn't conduct this struggle against communism while, you know, pursuing things or allowing things like this at home. Uh, but obviously there were much darker sides uh, of this as well. And before we, you know, plunge into another such, ideological struggle, we need to be aware of those dark sides uh, and their consequences. So um, 
uh, I, I think this this book does a, a tremendously uh, important job of um, reminding us of these things. Just, I've, I've talked for too long, so just very briefly at the end, though, I, I wanted to raise with Sam one question, which I think was very well put by David Miller in his book about um, nationalism, when he says that nations are communities that do things together. And I suppose an objection uh, to the book might be uh, that perhaps... Uh, an American society as loose and, you know, acceptedly diffuse as the one set out in, in Sam's book might not be capable of doing much together, um, doing various things that uh, in this, you know, enormous, complicated, huge economy um, uh, can only perhaps be done by the federal state. Um, uh, I'm thinking here above all, of course, of the sort of grand infrastructural uh, projects which were carried out by a Republican administration, of course, that of Eisenhower uh, in the 1950s, and which Biden at least uh, tries to envision or appears to envision uh, as part of his, um, his program today. Uh, and, um, of course, the key question here, I suppose, is just how... Uh, how great will be the challenges of the future which might require America to do things together as a society. Now, I, I would strongly resist trying to present China, let alone Russia, as the sort of challenge which requires, you know, a much more homogeneous and united and determined American society. But um, there is, of course, the possibility, well, we've seen a pandemic, only a limited one, thank God. But there are possibilities in future, climate change for me being perhaps first and foremost among them, that would require once again common action and common sacrifices by uh, the American people as a whole. And I suppose the question is whether, you know, a, a, a society quite as diffuse as the one uh, accepted by the book would be capable of doing that. The other question, uh, I mentioned Tocqueville, and it seems to me this is many, in many ways a very Tocquevillian book. But in his other great book, um, The Ancien Regime and the Revolution, uh, I remember that he, um, he gave us one of the causes of the revolution, the fact that under the Ancien Regime, in his view, I can't remember if it was a dozen or half a dozen people, but in the whole of France, uh, there were about 10 people who actually thought about France as a whole, French society as a whole, the French people as a whole, rather than their own little pocket, family, caste, town, whatever. And in his view, this led to, to consequences uh, for the Ancien Regime, which in the end made France ungovernable and led to uh, a very nasty revolution, in my view, that I think probably uh, most, of, most of you and most of the audience would agree in with Tocqueville that the French Revolution was probably not a good thing um, and that we should um, uh, therefore think you know, think about preserving a, um, societies and states that will not end up in revolution. Anyway, um, but Sam, congratulations again on a tremendously important uh, book and I, I look forward to our discussion. Thanks so much, Thank Anatole. You, I wanted to try to, to no, press please. one of the questions that that, uh, that Anatole had raised while roping in two questions from online and a parochial question. Uh, so I'll see if I can, if I can thread this needle. Um, the chapter about the creed refers to it as a warlike creed. And I think Anatole talked a little bit about the extent to which the creed was in some 
possibly not neat ways bound up with these conflicts, these sort of global conflicts. You talk about the defense of democracy uh, abroad. And Brooke Manville uh, says she loved the presentation and core ideas, but worries that some people think a future war with China or security competition with China is really the only way to keep Americans together, the sort of centrip centripetal force uh, to oppose the centrifugal forces. Um, and I wanted to ask you about how you thought the creed um, fit in a foreign policy context and to sort of draw out some of the ideas there. I had the opportunity one time to ask at an event Robert Kagan whether he thought his views of foreign policy fit conceptually better in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And without missing a beat, he said in the Democratic Party, right? It's an ideology of improvement. It's an ideology going back to sort of progressivism. And we remember Luchtenberg reading about, writing about progressivism and imperialism. So can you say a little bit about sort of the China competition as a unifying force and this issue of the warlike creed? Well, I, I, I suspect that I agree um, with Anatole, um, who, to paraphrase, and he can correct me if I if I mischaracterize his views, suggested that um, while it may be true that competition with China has a nationally unifying consequence, it would be crazy to pursue competition for the sake of that consequence. Um, and I, I think we have some recent unhappy experience um, with that attempt um, just 20 years ago following 9-11, um, which, as I recall, was hailed as an opportunity, not only for the physical protection of American territory and the lives of, of American citizens, but to recover the kind of romantic wartime unity um, that was half remembered from the Second World War or earlier. And we know how that turned out. Um, so I think pursuing conflict um, for the sake of cohesion um, is, is an extremely dangerous policy, um, and I, I, I would I would I would warn against it um, for that reason. Um, as for uh, the the sort of broader implications for foreign policy, um, I think I, if not belong to, have a certain affinity for an older understanding of the American creed, which, which held that it was America's responsibility to be an example to the world, but not to impose on the rest of the world American institutions and, and, and values. So I think that there is a hubristic or crusading tendency inherent to the creed. Um, but I also think uh, that it is possible, being aware of that tendency, to resist it. And in particular, I suggest in the book on, on a chapter on, um, on historiography, on, on, on history books, um, I, I think it's helpful to 
challenge the sort of teleological narrative of, of American history as the necessary and triumphant march and expansion of freedom from its proclamation in 1776 to its realization in 1941 or 1965 or whatever the other um, end point uh, you, you prefer. Uh, it, it has been a hard struggle and there has been movement on both sides. Uh, and one of the things I try to point out in the book is that even though uh, Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and other uh, Civil War era figures did articulate a, a version of creedal nationalism, the nation wasn't very interested. And on the contrary, the next half century of American history was characterized in many ways by a rejection of their arguments, um, not an embrace. So the, the implication of that history to me is um, that we should work on ourselves first and resist the, the temptation to try to improve other societies um, of which we, we understand extremely little. Thoughts on the warlike creed or where foreign policy fits in? Yeah, so ju just uh, to add two things to that, one is the, you know, the, the ironical, slightly tragic thing is that, of course, trying to unite the nation under their rule through the promotion of international tension is exactly what we have been accusing uh, um, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping of doing, right? You know, again and again, they've been accused of precisely this. So it would be very ironic if, if Western systems did that. Uh, the, the, the other thing is that I have to say, I, I completely support the idea uh, of Bob Kagan uh, going off to volunteer for the Ukrainian army to defend freedom and democracy in Ukraine, uh, or, or to volunteer for the Taiwanese Navy, um, or for that matter, for the Nigerian police force. Um, he would have my, my complete blessing uh, if he were to do that personally, and the others like him were to do that personally, and not try uh, to get all their fellow citizens who perhaps have no interest in this whatsoever to go and do it for them. Um, if, if I may respond just briefly to one of Anatole's questions about the things that can only plausibly be done um, at the national level, um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit less concerned about that um, than some of my critics have been because it seems to me that many of the policies that can only be effective at the national level are actually relatively popular, if not unanimous. You know, the, the problem um, to efforts to improve national infrastructure has not been a, a lack of national unity. Um, it's been the insistence um, of Congress and presidents um, of including all sorts of things that are not really infrastructure in the limited sense that many of us agree requires improvements. And the other obstacle um, has been the overwhelming costs that make it almost impossible even um, to pursue very necessary projects. So I, I sort of, I, I, I take the point that we can't and shouldn't disaggregate entirely. I'm just not convinced that insufficient cultural or ideological unity is the real obstacle to doing some of those things.
Let's, um, one of the interesting things in the book is, um, and this is an anonymous question, you talk about sort of strengthening the institutions of contestation. And you, both you and Anatole talked a little bit about getting to know your neighbor and arguing about where the water mains will go and, and sort of the normal, <laughs> less uh, 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 commanding heights sort of political questions, the sort of day-to-day functioning of a society. So can you talk a little bit about if you're strengthening institutions of contestation, number one, can you sort of describe precisely what you mean by that? And the question from online asks whether strengthening those institutions would tend to create a less oppressive or more restrictive government driven by, driven by a plurality rather than by a majority. So how would those sort of institutions of contestation work in your view? Um, so let me take those questions um, in reverse order, starting um, from the, the concern, as I take it, um, about local or, or internal tyranny or, or coercion, and then turning to the question about different forms of institutions that might, um, might make it possible to manage that. I mean, to, to me, the criterion um, for determining the amount of coercion or authority that's acceptable has a lot to do with the possibility of exit. So the easier it is to leave a community that you find misguided or even oppressive, the less inclined I am to interfere. And at the lowest level, that means purely voluntary associations that you can quit whenever you want to. But I also think that that includes um, state and local jurisdictions, where if you, if you really don't like the policies of your town or your county or your state, um, you can move. And historically, that has been an important part um, of the American response to pluralism. Um, rather than adapting institutions to suit the preferences of a pluralistic population, which is a really hard thing, thing to do, the American solution has been for people who are dissatisfied um, to move. So I've, I've been reading recently um, about uh, people leaving California, which I think in the most recent census lost population for the first time uh, in, in history. I think that's a good thing. If you are, if you are not satisfied in, in California, by all means, leave California and live somewhere that you would prefer, that you would prefer to live. So preserving the ability of states and local jurisdictions to differentiate themselves and to attract residents who want to live on those conditions seems to me very, very, very important. Um, as for institutions of contestation, um, I think one of the best examples um, is political parties, uh, which have a paradoxical status um, in current American life. Um, on the one hand, they seem to be very strong, um, as you mentioned in your in your introduction. People identify passionately as Democrats or Republicans in, in ways that they haven't, at least in living memory, although they have at certain other times in the past. At the same time, the parties are, are very weak institutionally. People strongly identify with the brands, but the parties themselves 
find it much more difficult to select their own candidates and to influence the behavior of elected officials who are who are affiliated with them than they used to do. Um, and in some ways, I think that's the biggest political story um, of the last decade in, in Donald Trump, of course, but also almost in Bernie Sanders. Both parties were taken over, in effect, by outsiders who had very little commitment to the institutional, the institutional party. I, I, think, I think that's a really bad thing because what it does is inflate the influence um, of the most activist primary voters and increase incentives for elected officials to cater to those most activist primary voters rather than coordinating with other members of the party in pursuit of some coherent agenda. So the political party is really a great American invention. Um, it's much more distinctively American than anything that's in the written constitution, uh, actually, and was recognized as such in the 19th century. And the political party evolved for the specific purpose of managing regional and ideological difference um, in a vastly extended republic. A century and more of sometimes well-intentioned, sometimes not reforms have made it very difficult for parties to do that. Um, I think we need to think about ways to make parties stronger rather than continuing to weaken them. Thank you. So Ross Silvestri asks on Facebook, and this is something that I think has come up a bit uh, recently among national conservatives, as they call themselves. To, to both of you, what are your thoughts on the argument that America is an idea? Does that lend itself to one or another version of American nationalism? Does it belong within the context of American nationalism? America is idea. Well, in, in, in some sense, um, every nation is an idea. Um, this is the, the, central argument um, of the anthropologist Benedict Anderson's famous book, Imagined Communities, which also has a provocative title that is commonly misunderstood. He's not saying that imagined communities are fake communities and that they will simply cease to exist when we make this discovery. He's suggesting that beyond a certain scale where face-to-face -face relationships are possible, every community is imagined insofar as it appeals to an idea of who is in and who is out that includes people one will never meet and places one will never will will never visit so i i i think yes it's true that america is is an idea um but that doesn't tell you very much because every nation has an ideational character um, and there are different american ideas. Now, when people talk about America as an idea, what they usually mean is a particular version or strand of the creedal, the creedal narrative in which America was founded for the purpose of establishing equal rights and representative, uh, representative government. And if you accept those general purposes, then you are presumptively an American. As a historical matter, I think that's just not true. 
um, I'm actually very sympathetic to some of the historical arguments made by so-called national conservatives or, or paleoconservatives, um, that that's just not what the early patriots and founders of the United States saw themselves as doing. Um, on the contrary, I suggest it's, it's, it's largely a back projection to some extent from the Civil War to a period a century earlier, but really from the middle of the 20th century um, to the 18th century. But I do think that in the world in which we actually live, um, a, a kind of ideational or constitutional patriotism that is focused on political institutions and civic activity is probably the best that we can do. Um, so what what I what I suggest in the book or what what I encourage is to try to 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 sever that kind of constitutional patriotism or or people sometimes call it civic nationalism um, from a triumphant historical narrative that I just don't think stands up to scrutiny. I was just about to mention Benedict Anderson myself, and um, just this, that, you know, exactly what Sam said, um, an idea lies behind every national identity project or whatever, and, and not just national, but, um, you know, my Irish great-grandmother was called O'Brien. Um, the idea uh, that she was descended directly from King Brian Baru uh, was um, an imaginary um, construct. Uh, it, it did not reflect actual genetic tradition. Uh, so, yes, I mean, uh, it, it's true of America, but to, to a certain extent of, of all places. Um, and uh, insofar as it helps to legitimate and maintain the American Constitution and the, the whole system, the, the, the culture of procedural justice, which is, as I think we saw in, in the aftermath of the last elections, uh, is, is tremendously important, you know, to make uh, America, you know, a governable society at all, you know, to, to, to maintain basic civic peace and order in America. It is terribly important, but yes, there are there are great dangers uh, involved as well, which Sam highlights, which I talked about in my book on American nationalism. And I thought that, in one way, the, this was brought the, the dangers were brought out rather well in a an essay for Foreign Affairs uh, this month, which was talking about how um, migration, including migration into the United States. Uh, is a really good thing and necessary in order to spread democracy in the rest of the world. Well, now, you know, from the point of view of American citizens, there are arguments, you know, in favor of greater immigration, there are arguments in favor of less immigration. Uh, but I really do not think that um, uh, it is, you know, one has the right to go to ordinary Americans and say, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to accept this or that for the sake of you know, a theoretical project of spreading democracy and freedom to other places, which um, may not want it, and which, of course, you may have absolutely no idea in practice how to build the American system there, or even whether the American system is or should be built in these places. So, yes, I mean, the, the, the messianic aspect 
uh, of the creed is, I think, extremely dangerous. And um, of course, this was highlighted uh, 60 years ago by writers um, like Richard Hofstadter um, and C. Van Woodward and others, you know, in, in, in the context of the Vietnam War and the, and, you know, the way in which uh, the creedal nationalism contributed to this, but it seems, you know, those lessons have to be relearned and relearned. You know, we had to learn them again after the whole Iraqi catastrophe, which was also, of course, justified. Uh, however, hypocritically, but it was justified and appealed to many liberal intellectuals, you know, in the name precisely of this creedal, you know, um, messianic project. So, um, essential for domestic purposes in certain respects, uh, and as an underpinning of the constitution, which is essential, you know, to American life, uh, but very dangerous applied outside America. I wanted to draw out something that Sam said in his opening remarks, um, and this does not belong in the canon of Hofstadter or Anderson, but we were talking before we went live about Connor Cruz O'Brien's slim little volume, Godland. Um, and one of the things that he writes in that is that people frequently worry about the fusion of religion with nationalism. That's a really common idea that, that generally speaking, liberal people worry about. And he writes that he worries less about that than he worries about the fusion of technology with nationalism. And he has a little vignette about going to the National Air and Space Museum. But you mentioned, and this obviously wasn't what he was thinking of, social media, the sort of self-selection of ideas that we consume and non-self-selection of ideas that we consume, sorting into information consumption communities of various stripes. Do you see that getting better, getting worse? Because it is a, it's a super salient political contestation and you have, um, ironically, I guess, in some sense, you know, some sort of nationalists talking about we need to break up these companies for a variety of different reasons, but it does seem like whatever your particular flavor of ideology, um, you can sort of contain and consume what you want and be uh, 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 shielded from things that you don't want to consume. What, do you, what role do you think that plays here? Well, let me say something first about religion since, since you, you brought it up um, and I should say that I, I, I basically agree with O'Brien. Um, of course, there, there are um, dangers of uh, the fusion of religion and politics, whether in a nationalist or, or other form. Um, but our great religious traditions also include extraordinary resources for reflection, sobriety, self-criticism, and restraint that are not always uh, the elements that are emphasized, but are in there. And I, I actually have more confidence um, in uh, religiously informed approaches to political reflection than I am in secular ones. I, I think I think the entirely secular ones are, are more inclined to the kind of the, the kind of hubris and messianism um, that you're de that we're describing than religious ones, which is paradoxical because messianism is is a religious uh, a religious idea. And in the book, when I'm I'm talking about the covenant, I, I praise those aspects of covenantal political theology um, that do seem to at least 
in principle allow a kind of self-reflection and self and self-restraint and that tended to disappear not because Americans became more traditionally religious, but because they adopted a much looser um, and and uh, more individualistic conception of religion through the 19th century. So I couldn't resist saying that. Um, it also connects to my first book on Christian Zionism. As for technology, um, I, I am um, intrigued by some of the proposals um, for uh, increased regulation of, of social media. I'm not sufficiently expert in these matters um, to have a highly developed opinion, but I do think um, that some policy response um, is, uh, is, is, is warranted, um, not only because of the risk of monopoly, but also because Social media have this paradoxical quality, um, which is that they feel much freer than they are. When 30 million Americans were watching Walter Cronkite, they knew they were watching Walter Cronkite. And if they disagreed, it was very clear when one was doing so. Um, the problem with social media is not just uh, the, the curation or, or tailoring of the content we encounter to our preferences. It's the appearance that that isn't happening, that we are just getting what's out there without media, without mediation or selection. Um, so I'm I'm interested in proposals for how to deal with that, but I'm I'm not sufficiently um, expert in policy to have any of my any of my own. Um, more more generally, and this is an idea that I didn't invent, um, but has been circulating on social media, ironically, but find appealing. Um, is, is uh, the proposal for a sort of 21st century temperance movement um, uh, focused on the use of social media um, and inspired by the example of the original temperance movement um, responding to the abuse of alcohol, which was a social problem um, of, of a size that's almost unimaginable to us today. And it was really a century long project um, from the beginning of the organized temperance movement in the early 19th century through its success, or, or if you prefer, its failure uh, in, in prohibition. Um, so there, there's a really powerful example from American history of using voluntary association and moral restraint to address the challenge of a deeply appealing and I think um, probably psychologically addictive uh, addictive product. So there's no there's no quick and easy answer here. Um, but the absence of quick and easy answers is is one of the themes of, of my book. And at all. I'd just like, to, just like to say that as a parent, uh, I find the idea of a temperance movement uh, to, uh, against the social media very, very appealing. Yeah, we have a, a sort of authoritarian regime in our house on social media. So, um, but it is, I mean, what, what your social media temperance movement may need, Sam, is a, a meme to get it started paradoxically. <laughs> that might be the, the way to get it to take off. I want to see if there's one more question we can bring in from the audience. Um, 
Let's see. So there's a lot of elevation of this idea that um, the, the strengthening of domestic institutions at home would have a foreign policy impact internationally. It would have a policy impact internationally in the sense that people increasingly look at the United States as a sort of rickety ship of state, um, not with the sort of juxtaposition against the Soviet Union that pervaded certainly the early Cold War, um, but as a sort of the idea of contrast between the United States and its various competitors overseas, particularly obviously China, um, is less stark than it once was. So do you, the question is sort of, do you think that strengthening these institutions, devolving this uh, uh, political identity uh, in more of a pluralistic direction could redound to the, to the benefit, not just of our domestic politics and their, our relations with each other, but our relations internationally? Well, I, 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 I hope so. And the reason I hope so is that I think that this country can only flourish by doing the things that we do well. And we are not going to flourish by trying to beat China at its own, at its own game. And I, I think many, many of um, the political and cultural and institutional phenomena that are seen around uh, the world as symptoms of, of national breakdown um, are the result of trying to grasp too hard and do and do too much. Um, so if you think that what we've been doing for the last uh, 30 or so years hasn't been working, I agree. Um, my suggestion is we don't need to do more of the same, only harder and better. Maybe we need to try um, a different solution. It's to strengthen, you know, it, itself at home domestically, you know, to, to reduce divisions, um, to make things work better for America's own sake not for the sake, once again, of competition with China or anywhere else, for America's own sake. Uh, but that said, um, you know, I, I, I do believe with Lincoln um, that if the American democratic project system falters or fails within America, this will be a catastrophe uh, for the rest of the world. And certainly speaking as a European, as a Brit, um, the, the, the failure or, or the severe compromising of American democracy um, would have t terrible effects uh, on um, democracy in Europe uh, in the long run. Um, but uh, as I say, I mean, I, I think <laughs> that, that's not the point from which America should begin. The point is for, you know, for America to make America work well for America's, and not America's, but from the point of view of the American people. And then, yes, that will have a very good effect on the rest of the world. But I think, you know, when it comes to, to turning it into a subset of competition with China or Russia or, or uh, elsewhere, the risk then becomes uh, that indeed, um, it, you know, you, you begin to resemble the Soviet Union a bit. In other words, you are pumping out propaganda to the outside world, uh, which may have, you know, which then also, you know, allows the people pumping out the propaganda actually to suppress uh, you know, th serious thinking uh, about their own system. 
And so eventually the propaganda has less and less relation uh, to reality. Um, and far from strengthening the system at home, uh, it becomes, um, as Lewis Hart and others pointed out, a way of not thinking uh, about things that need to be done at home. So I think there are, it, it, it's, it depends on the point you start from and the intention that you start with, I think, which then can colour uh, everything else. Yeah, there was a good, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a good piece recently by Howard French uh, lamenting this idea that we have to do all these good, important things for ourselves as a vehicle to compete with China and the perversity of thinking that good, productive things uh, that could be done at home might only be passable through the vehicle of international competition is a sort of weird, uh, backward way of viewing uh, doing politics in 21st century America. Um, I think what I would like to do is to give either or both of you the opportunity for a few concluding remarks, uh, where to go from here. Um, we're grateful. We received a lot of questions online. We're sorry that we didn't get a chance to get to all of them. Um, but this event video will be posted on the Cato website either later today or tomorrow. Um, so Sam and Anatol, I guess in that order, um, say a couple of words about uh, where to go from here. And let me just thank you and all the viewers right now. Thanks, Justin. Um, so I think I'll, I'll conclude um, just by uh, responding to some of the claims that have already come up in in the reviews, which which characterize this um, as a as a depressing book. Um, one one reviewer compared me um, to uh, Matthew Arnold on Dover Beach, uh, watching the tide go out, mourning. Um, but I, I I don't think of this as a depressing book because I, I think that one of the lessons um, is that the the problems that we now encounter and the divisions that seem so profound are not are not altogether new and that we can find um, in our past examples for responding to them which will not look exactly the same but may allow us to reconstitute ourselves for some period of time before the challenges emerge again. Um, so th this is, you know, this is in some ways, um, I think, a, a deflating book if you hold a sort of messianic uh, understanding of American history, according to which we should have solved all the problems by now. Um, but if you don't hold that view and you, you see controversy and tension surrounding national identity as itself part of the American experience, um, then I think it can also be read as a reassuring book that we have, um, we have been here before. Anatole, any concluding yes. thoughts? I, I think that's, that's exactly right, actually. Um, I, I didn't find it a depressing book very much for that reason. Um, you know, it's, it's only depressing if you have a, a vastly, in my view, overblown and even messianic idea of what America should be. Uh, but I think, um, yes, I mean, there will be future challenges. Um, I don't regard China as that kind of challenge, but 
you know, history is a long business. We don't know what will come along in future. I think climate change is coming along. Other people might disagree. But I think um, a, a very important thing about this book is that um, to prepare America to meet these unknown challenges, one, one should not pursue, you know, the, this, this, this ideal or this dream of a monolithic, unified America, disciplined behind one vision of the good and moral and democratic society, that, that such a, a, an approach can only in fact lead to more and more bitter divisions within America. And that if America is going to meet these future challenges uh, successfully, uh, as I think Sam argues very persuasively, you know, America can only do so by the acceptance of difference and plurality within American society. I think that's a terrific note on which to conclude. Let me again thank Sam and Anatol for their participation today. God willing, next time we'll do this uh, in person. The book again is After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division. And thank you very much for joining us for this book forum.